Thanks for tuning into the Excel Legal Podcast, an interview-based podcast for lawyers devoted to practice excellence and wellness tips. I'm your host, Shelley Appleby-Ostroff, legal talent development consultant, writing coach, and former practicing lawyer. And I'm so happy you're here. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Rebecca Bromwich about diversity and inclusion in the legal profession. Rebecca is a National Manager of Diversity and Inclusion at Gowling WLG. In her varied legal career, Rebecca has worked as a lawyer in litigation and law reform and taught and researched in academia. Welcome to the XL Legal Podcast, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks so much for being here. The topic of diversity and inclusion in the legal profession is becoming so complex and the terminology itself for someone who is just being introduced to the area seems a bit complicated. And I found that sometimes the terms mean different things to different people. So I'm wondering if maybe we could start off by sort of getting a sense from you, what are the appropriate terms in the area and how would you define them? In the diversity and inclusion space, often you will hear the word equity used. Equity really refers to a concept that's more close to, for the lawyers among us, section 15 sub two of the charter with reference to substantive equality. The notion that you need sometimes to have differential treatment to have a fair result. Um, so it's not that formal notion of equality that everybody is treated the same because you know there's that famous adage that uh, the rich and the poor are equally free and equal, equally able to sleep under bridges, right? So equity is about addressing people um, in the as they are differently situated. And diversity right. is you know another key term, and it really following up on that notion of as we are differently situated, diversity is a fact. It is the fact that we are different from each other and we're different from each other in complicated ways. And so as Kimberly Crenshaw said, when she coined the term intersectionality in the nineties, we are all a number of different intersecting things. So we have, so I have a gender, I have a race, I have a socioeconomic status, I have an age, I have uh, a certain abilities and disabilities um, and there's all kind and family status and, and history. And so when we come into a space, when we interact in a workplace, we bring with us that diversity. And that's a fact. And that is just true. Uh, Even if there's no visible diversity, there can be lots of invisible diversity in terms of mental health, in terms of disabilities. Um, And then inclusion is a verb. So inclusion is what you do with that. So inclusion goes beyond that notion of uh, equality, that's legal equality or the notion of human rights. Inclusion includes that notion of of human rights, those legal minimum standards. Because remember, the law is all about minimums. It's it's regulation is all about what is the what is the least acceptable amount of effort. Whereas inclusion is about how do we create a space in the work context where people feel not just entitled to be there. So it's not just about rights. It is rights, but it's beyond rights. It's where they feel welcomed, where people are respected where people's voices are welcomed and where they are engaged. So inclusion is an active process in which we can all participate and we all should participate to leverage the value of diversity. So we know diversity is there as our, um, you know, as our society becomes increasingly demographically diverse, as we have a more open society with reference to things like LGBT plus identities or gender um, identity, 
Um, we know that the diversity is there and inclusion is what we do about it. And inclusion, it's, it's that combination of diversity and inclusion that has business benefits. So that business case for diversity really is a business case for combining the, that diversity that's there, leveraging it, including as many people as possible so that the workplaces we are in are as diverse as the populations in which we live. And then actually including people in all their diversity so that they can be engaged and feel authentic and really bring their ideas to the table. Super, really, really helpful. Thank you for that. And so I take it then the acronym EDI refers to equality, diversity, and inclusion, all three together. That's right. Equality, diversity, and inclusion, or sometimes equity, but okay. yes, EDI is that. Okay. Okay. So in the legal profession, what are some of the key challenges that um, that lawyers and others are, are facing or dealing with these days? Well, I mean, in the context of COVID, so we are dealing with all the challenges we were dealing with before. So those long-term challenges in the legal profession, the continuing marginality of historically marginalized groups, uh, you know, uh, and people were sort of most aware of it most early with respect to gender with, you know, the Canadian Bar Association uh, handed down the Touchstones Report over 25 years ago now, where it was noted that there were there were, and there have been for 30 years, certainly there were 20 years ago when I graduated law school, 50% women and 50% men graduating law schools across Canada. But yet we still don't see that parity or equality of women in the legal profession. So, so that continuing issue with respect to women in leadership in the legal profession, um, the retention of women in private practice, also a lack of visible diversity on the bench, um, too low levels of, for example, representation of uh, Black or otherwise uh, racialized people, um, and also um, workplace structures that are systemically problematic for a variety of different historically marginalized groups. All of that's still happening. In 2020, of course, we have that plus COVID, right? Mm -hmm. In the COVID context, it exacerbates and escalates some of the issues we're already experiencing. So for example, one of the things that was observed, um, you know, it has been observed for decades, um, is the fact that that women disproportionately bear unpaid labor burdens in terms of uh, uh, parenting, but also care of elderly and aging relatives. And in the COVID-19 um, context, where the uh, social safety net, where childcare and even education and all kinds of mechanisms that uh, families and people would use to contract out to third parties some of those unpaid labor obligations, that all was dismantled very quickly with the lockdown. And so you see a lot of writing now and a lot of concern about how women are disproportionately bearing the burden of unpaid labor within the home in terms of uh, care work. Uh, some of the emotional labor too of dealing with a crisis. So we, we have that. And then an ongoing issue that continues to be problematic in the legal profession, there's been lots of writing about how depression and other mental health issues are problematic in the legal profession. We are, you know, the champions uh, in many studies in terms of mental health issues in the workplace, although there are some, you know, rival professions too. Um, but certainly uh, there is a problem with depression, substance abuse, mental health issues in the legal profession. That continues to be the case. But then that plus COVID um, means that there is actually an escalation in that, an escalation in terms of burnout and uh separation of people from the supports they might otherwise have been able to access. Um, so that's problematic too. And then of course, um, as 
became prominent in terms of the news cycle in June of 2020, um, the Black Lives Matter movement um, and the notion that uh, Black people and in Canada, Indigenous people as well, are in, underrepresented in the legal profession was something that sort of came to prominence. I, I do want to highlight that none of that is new either. That's the type that ha, that has been going on for many, many years. Um, the underrepresentation of historically marginalized racial groups in the legal profession continues to be a problem. What we are seeing is a really exciting new level of interest about that um, and new anti-racist activity and new anti-racist work being done within the profession. Um, so those are some of the challenging issues. One of the things I'm concerned about is, as I said, sort of at the beginning here, Kimberly Crenshaw talking about intersectionality. When we talk about diversity and inclusion, we're trying not to lose sight of all the different pieces that are intersecting with one another and entangling people in a kind of web of inequality. And if we focus on one, sometimes you have to do that in order to understand what's going on there. But if we stop paying attention to other things, then we can continue to be entangled. So it's really important that diversity and inclusion work continues to sort of plod along, trying to move the needle on a number of different issues at the same time. That in and of itself is a huge challenge, I imagine. Well, it is a huge challenge. It's, it's a challenge to bring people together, to work together, to understand the ways in which our interests are aligned. Um, everybody doing diversity and inclusion work is an ally in some way. And everybody is, uh, you know, a person experiencing diversity and inclusion issues in, an, in other ways, right? So um, people are, at Down WLG where I work, we have a 21 member diversity and inclusion council from our offices, our seven offices across Canada and our office in Russia, we work together on that. Our UK offices have other uh, structures um, and so do our international offices. Um, but what, what's key about that is everybody comes to that work with a passion for diversity and inclusion because of some personal connection um, mm-hmm. with it. And so everybody has their own firsthand experience of diversity and inclusion issues and everybody also has their experience as an ally. And so it really necessitates that, that we understand uh, how we need to work together to dismantle systems and structures. And I just want to say, you know, on that issue of systems and structures, this is a, this is a factoid that I like to um, convey to people is there was a study the UN um, Women Organization released last year. And this is, again, not news. This is something that uh, academics have been saying for a long time. Um, but nine out of 10 people in this particular study were biased against women. They had gender bias in favor of men. And what's significant about that to note is it's nine out of 10 people, not nine out of 10 men, right? Mm. So bias and discrimination and inequality in terms of systems of thought in our culture aren't necessarily just held by a particular demographic group of people. We have to look at ideology. We have to look at power. We have to look at how systems interplay. And it's important that, you know, I mean, I think looking at identities and how people are socially located is really important, but identity politics isn't enough because I can't say because I'm a woman that I don't have any gender bias. That's just not true. That's not accurate. That is scientifically proven to be false. It, so our identities are not enough. It's, it's about analysis. It's about work. It's about consciously and mindfully trying to move the needle. How then do we recognize our biases? Well, one of the we have uh, committed to and we are doing at our firm is uh, unconscious bias training 
Um, you know, there's lots of, of it available. We have our own trainings uh, that we do internally, and we also offer them sometimes externally as well to clients and others. Um, but uh, we worked with Deloitte on that. There are also resources online. I would say the uh, um, implicit association test that Harvard has put out, you can Google that, it's on the web, provides you an interesting window into some of the systems and structures of thought that you might have in your mind. Keeping in mind that bias is something we do inadvertently. It is uh, unconscious. Uh, and for the most part, these are well-intentioned people who are acting on bias. I certainly would not want, for example, to be biased against women. I certainly would not want to be biased against any particular demographic group. But a bias could be, you know, one of the things that's more common uh, in legal profession than other kinds of bias is affinity bias. So it's not so much that we're biased against somebody. We might be biased in favor of somebody. And that has the consequence of having negative results for other people. So for example, I, I give this example really often. I, uh, I teach uh, at the university and when my kids were little, before they started being mean to me, they're teenagers now, very favorably disposed to young people who reminded me of my kids. And I think I still am. Um, you know, if somebody, if, if something about them really reminded me of my kids, I would be like, oh, I wanna help them out. It was an extra kind of maternal instinct or, you know, desire to be helpful to those particular people. Problematic thing about that, of course, I'm a white woman, right? And that meant that my natural affinity was to white students. And so I became aware of that, just sort of thinking critically about it. And one of the uh, nudges I made and, and process changes I put in place was having some blind grading and also more group projects uh, to try to... Um, dislodge that particular type of bias thinking. But again, notice that a lot of our biases don't come from a bad place. They come from our life experience, they come from affinity. We also have cognitive biases in terms of, we all like hearing things we agree with, right? And we see this so much in the uh, most recent election cycle in the United States with the sort of two solitudes and the echo chambers um, that everybody likes to hear what they agree with. And the algorithms on social media are based on a recognition of that fact because social me media, you know, it, it, one, one important phrase to look at with reference to social media is if something's offered to you free, then you're the product, right? So Facebook, Twitter, these things are offered to us free. Well, why? It's because they are vehicles for advertising and for pushing for market research and pushing the capitalism, the market forward. Um, and those algorithms give us information we like and we agree with because people like it. It's it's a real kind of confirmation and affirmation of that research about uh, cognitive bias with respect to information bias. So it's important that we, in order to nudge ourselves and push ourselves away from that kind of information bias, that we um, develop processes and are really mindful and intentional about what kind of criteria we use to evaluate any kind of claim because we're gonna more naturally feel unconsciously and instinctively like agreeing with a claim we already, we already you know, opinion we already had. Um, but it may be that that's wrong, right? So it's important that we use various types of scrutiny, for example, like the scientific method to uh, fight against things like information bias. Um, and then another kind of bias is the idea that, that we are actually all better at using our rational, uh, slow processing mindfully when we have more energy. Uh, and so there's lots of studies that show that we make better decisions. And it's kind of intuitive, but it's also been empirically proven and extends beyond where it's intuitive. But 
we make better choices when we're not tired. We actually make better choices when we're not hungry. We're more likely to be fairer um, if we uh, are not running on it. And so it's an important thing to look at how do we set up systems and processes to deal with affinity bias, um, social bias, to deal with information bias, and also how to deal with capacity bias. So what that does is it sort of links mental health and legal profession with the notion of bias that we are going to do better if we save some energy and time to set up appropriate processes. And we are going to be more egalitarian and more diverse and inclusive as a profession if we give ourselves some room to breathe and actually um, don't work ourselves to a point where we're not able to produce quality work. Because when we're not producing quality work, we're also not able to make quality decisions. That's so interesting. And I wonder to what, in terms of systems and processes, uh, would that apply to hiring practices, for example, or how, where might that play itself out? Well, absolutely. And in the work that we're doing um, with respect to diversity and inclusion at my firm, at LNWOG, we're looking at recruitment and retention as well as other uh, programs and communications and other aspects of our work. But um, one of the things that I noticed right away in joining the legal profession, because I had worked, you know, in various other types of jobs, is uh, the legal profession tends to be very reticent about um, formal documents and formal processes, right? We tend to uh, base relationships on trust. We don't, you know, the lawyers don't like law, right? <laughs> in some ways. Or we at least understand how malleable it is. Um, and so there, there tends to be a lot of uh, informal kind of fit-based hiring. And what is important to note is, is that uh, that can be tainted, our informal processing can be tainted by bias. So if we set up any kind of process at all, it's usually going to help us unless we intentionally are making a discriminatory process. So if we have questions when we recruit people and we hire people, we have replicable questions asked in the same order of candidates, we're probably going to be able to counterbalance against our first impression. And that isn't that our first impression is always wrong, but we're going to, we're verifying it, we're checking it, right? Um, and the, uh, the, so that's one thing. Having more than one interviewer is a good idea in recruitment because we have different biases, right? On the one hand, we, ca we carry with us a lot of cultural baggage. But we also have experiential baggage and our biases are our mental shortcuts. And so, um, for example, I have this little dog. She's small and fluffy. And uh, I in my neighborhood, there's a, there's a big dog. It's like a great Dane that walks um, and, you know, have dogs. You say hi or whatever. I mean, this great Dane is scared of my dog because when the great Dane was really little, when she was a puppy, um, a dog that looked like my dog attacked her. And that's kind of a very sort of pedestrian example, but we all are like that in terms of our experiences. And so our experiences are our lens, they're our window on reality. But if we have more than one panel, interviewer on a panel, if we have a diverse panel, um, and that's where sort of the Mansfield rule comes about as well, having a diverse panel of candidates, having a diverse panel of, of interviewers will help mitigate or account for the bias of each person. Mm hmm. Makes such good sense. And I'm wondering sort of the, the next stage. So um, how can you ensure that lawyers feel included after they've been hired? Like, I, I understand yeah. that while many firms are able to attract a great and diverse complement of lawyers, when partnerships decisions are being made, let's say five to seven years out, 
women and minorities have disappeared in much higher proportions than they should have. So to me, that sounds like there's a, a retention issue as well. Oh, for sure there's a retention issue. And that's been very clear uh, since at least the inception of the Justicia Project in, in you know, the early 2000s, and that was by the Law Society of Ontario, and then adopted by Law Society of Alberta, Law Society of BC, uh, that there is a problem with attrition of women and people from marginalized groups, certainly from private practice. The government doesn't necessarily face the same issue. Um, but the same types of thought processes that are applicable in recruitment decisions are beneficial to use in recruit and retention and advancement decisions. So in terms of, so one thing we've instituted at our firm since 2018, um, rather than have a relatively informal uh, process for appointment of people to the partnership, we've instituted a more formal process whereby there is an application form or a nomination form, and there are specifically enumerated spaces on that for particular things. And all applications are scrutinized by me as diversity and inclusion manager to look for gendered language, uh, use of adjectives, rather than um, uh, anchoring observations in uh, particular facts. So I'll give you an example. Um, if somebody says, oh, this, this person has the makings of a great lawyer, uh, they're a rising star, and it doesn't specifically anchor those adjectives in particular events or outcomes, um, then we'll send it back and we'll say, you know what, you need to tell us in more detail what, why you say this about this person. And also we differentiate between the languages. And actually our people are getting much better at this as we move forward. We, you know, we're shifting the culture, but it formerly used to be that you might have the adjective uh, rising star used more often about a male or sweetheart or something like that used about a woman. And there, again, it's a little bit like affinity bias. Those are good things, right? But um, you don't want necessarily prime minister sweetheart, right? That process, not to say there was bias before, because again, we don't have any conclusive findings about that. But the notion, and we worked with Deloitte on that, is to interrupt places where there's a possibility of unconscious bias. Um, we were able to, we set a target of 30% women in the partnership, which, um, uh, you know, younger lawyers would often say isn't that good, but it's certainly progress for us. And we made that target in 2019. So then we shifted our target to 33% and we're working towards that target now. So it is Excellent. little incremental, thank you, these little incremental things uh, in the mundane and those micro processes, those micro interactions, the little things, we can actually make a big difference. And I imagine um, mentoring too is an area that um, you know could be really helpful in in helping people feel more like they belong. And maybe I don't know if you have a specific mentoring program um, at Galling WLG or or how that works. Yeah, we do. So we have we have a mentoring program is uh, for we have mentoring programs for our associates, for our partners, and for our staff, um, for our business services professionals. Um, and, and it has been identified, one of the things diverse professionals uh, said, women and people from historically marginalized racial groups and LGBT plus people um, have said that it, it is in not seeing it, it's hard to be it. So connecting with people so you don't feel isolated. And uh, we tried very carefully to match people with mentors who they can sort of see themselves in. And that can be really helpful. Another thing, in addition to mentoring, is this notion of sponsorship. But, um, that senior people will often groom successors 
And again, this is a piece of affinity bias that we are more likely, if we don't think about it, predisposed to sort of intuitively um, see someone who reminds us of us in, in some physical, racial, ethnic, gender-based way as a potential successor. So we've tried to establish protocols and processes to ensure that we are cultivating uh, diverse people for leadership roles um, and seeing the ways in which we have things in common with each other that are not necessarily visible or obvious. So some wonderful initiatives and, and I imagine you've developed them through trial and error. Um, but I'm wondering if you can talk about what distinguishes a successful initiative from one that maybe falls short. Well, I mean, one simple answer is that they all fall short. <laughs> Nobody has successfully in the legal profession set up uh, an organization where diversity and inclusion have been achieved or there is complete equality. So I think a successful initiative is one that realizes its own limitations and that realizes that, it, that it's the best current effort and is not so ambitious that it is not achievable. So I think a successful initiative is achievable, but um, ambitious. Um, mm. And so, you know, we have to define wins that are possible, but, um, but also, you know, not, we're not being too easy on ourselves, right? So I think a, a successful initiative is one that can be measured. And so the way to make sure that um, we're able to have successful initiatives is to start with measuring. And our firm started our diversity and inclusion work, and this is before I came on board, this is back when I was with the Canadian Bar Association, we started our work with a census. So we did a demographic study of, uh, and as well as focus groups and interviews of uh, where, what are our numbers like in our firm? And we, we did it uh, with privacy and anonymity um, guarantee, but where are we? To get a sense of um, where we're starting and that's how you can make progress, measurable progress. And I think of diversity a little bit like fitness, right? Um, so my brother runs the Boston Marathon every year. He's in super good shape. Um, and uh, I do not run the Boston Marathon every year. And it's not a realistic goal for me to say, you know what, post COVID, I'm gonna go and run that Boston Marathon unless I really, really train and I have to qualify and everything like that. So we, you, you have to know whatever organization you're with, where are you at? Like, what is your fitness level? What is your diversity and inclusion level? Um, what are your numbers? Let's say you have 10% women in a partnership. Well, it's probably not realistic to say you're going to get to 50% tomorrow, right? So what is what is this year's chunk of that? What is today's piece of uh, moving the agenda forward? So it's good to have short-term goals, mid-term goals, and long-term goals. We should all be aspiring to have full equality, um, but it's important to be realistic about um, what what's achievable and sometimes less is more because if you have a very ambitious program of diversity and inclusion related goals uh, but they're not achievable it can be very disheartening for people you can lose engagement so there's a lot at stake are there any sort of specific obstacles that um, you faced or that you've heard other firms or other uh, legal workplaces facing and trying to foster more edi interestingly enough when I came on board to this job, I thought I would be facing more obstacles uh, in different ways than I did. So I thought that I would see open resistance from some of the senior leadership. We have not had, I have not experienced that. At Sally WLG, 
Um, I think it's partly the legacy of Scott Joliffe, who was such a leader with respect to diversity and inclusion. But our firm is it, people really are on board and wanting to make positive changes. So, so I am not seeing resistance in that way. I think there is resistance, and certainly we saw with the Law Society of Ontario's election last year with respect to ventures that there is open resistance to diversity and inclusion work. Uh, but that's not happening, I think, at most of the larger firms. I think people are persuaded by the business case. Where there is resistance, it's it's partly in the how. It's how do you action in a in a workable, manageable way that is compatible with the fact that this is a business? How do you action trying to make change? It's all very well and good to make aspirational statements. And it is actually good. It is helpful. We've signed on to, for example, the UN Women's Empowerment Principles, the UN Global Compact, a number of uh, international, national, local commitments, um, the Black North Initiative. Those, are, those things are all good. Um, but, but one challenge is how do you go from a commitment to diversity and inclusion to positive action with respect to diversity and inclusion? Um, so one of the things I'm very committed to at this firm is not to be involved in virtue signaling, not to be involved in performative um, allyship, but rather to actually do things. So one of the initiatives I'm quite proud of that we're doing um, with respect to anti-racism is we have an anti-racism pro bono initiative. Um, so we signed on to the law firm Anti-Racism Alliance, but the first thing we did with that is establish a pro bono initiative so that we're putting um, we're putting an investment of time and basically money into helping the organizations on the ground uh, that are that are doing this work and uh, trying to make systemic change in a very practical way. So I think one of one of the issues is is definitely moving from the commitment because a lot of firms are willing to make that commitment um, to uh, actually taking action. Another resistance or area of challenge is. We're different from other countries in that in Canada, we don't have to demographically self-ID. In the United States, um, you have to. You have to disclose your ethnic gender, racial identity, sexual orientation, and things like that on all kinds of uh, data collection that's provided to government. In Canada, we don't do that. So one of the issues is where there isn't enough information, how do we, because we really need that. I mean, I, I really feel, because I come from an academic background and I really believe in the scientific method and, and intellectual rigor in, you know, in decision-making. We want the evidence first and then we, we act on the evidence. So one of the challenges is we just don't have as much evidence in Canada as in other places because we don't mandatorily collect the data. And as a business, as a business any private, private sector firm is going to be um, more motivated to do more things if there's a clear business case for doing it. So I would say that uh, it, the onus should really fall on the law societies um, to help us surmount some of those challenges and actually step into that space and regulate. Are there any initiatives that uh, the law society is supporting or, or pushing forward these days? Well, they do have a, a, a committee and I'm not sure what their plans are. Various plans have been floated over time and I know there's been a change to leadership there. So what, I can't really speak to what the Los Angeles Ontario's plans are right now. Okay. And I'm just wondering about lawyers themselves within firms or other organizations. How can they be EDI champions in their workplaces? Because we were talking about things coming from the top and you know, added in the law society, but what can lawyers themselves do? Well, I'm glad you asked that because it doesn't always have to be epic and dramatic to be supportive of equality, diversity, and inclusion. Like when we're talking about unconscious bias, 
often we're talking about little micro processes. So for example, and I know it's COVID right now. So on the elevator, when you are back in the office, it, who do you say hi to at the elevator, right? Do you smile at people that you work with? What is the way in which people are treating one another? How much attention is paid to various people? If you organize a meeting and you can do this from home on Zoom, who speaks first and why? How can you allocate time between different presenters or different people in a meeting? How can that be shifted? Who gets invited to the meeting? How is work reviewed? Are there metrics for how you, for example, if you have reports, if you have juniors who report to you, how do you review their work? How do you give feedback? How much feedback do different people get? There are lots of very simple ways um, to systematize processes so that you're able to kind of interrupt the places where your bias might come through in ways that you don't intend. Another one is simply just becoming more aware of your bias. So I would recommend that implicit association test that's online um, and you just Google it. It's uh, Harvard has, has provided that it's psychology department. Another one is just committing to having the intention uh, to doing better, to trying to be fair, because there is empirical evidence that a commitment to try not to be biased, to try to uh, support others is actually helpful. Another one is making space, right? So sometimes we get speaking invitations or various uh, invitations for work. And um, uh, there's also uh, you know, a phenomenon of, of some work hoarding. Make sure credit is given. Um, there's lots of stats about how um, women and people of marginal, historically marginalized groups do a lot of work they don't get credit for. So how is credit allocated? How, are they, how is work attributed? Um, those are all things people can do. So there's, I would just say, I mean, that's a lot, but what I would say just to try to think of simple, small things, because it's those simple, small things that together can shift culture. Not everything has to be a big policy change. Super helpful. I really, really appreciate uh, your insights. This is a fairly new area for me, and it's just really opened my eyes. Um, and it seems that underlying most of what you said is this, this principle of, you know, helping lawyers feel free to be themselves, feel safe, feel supported, and really be able to thrive in their workplaces. And I'm just wondering if there's anything else that um, you know, we haven't touched on that you think would be helpful to sort of support that. I think your point about authenticity is really important. We, we work in a profession where we fight for a living. <laughs> and so that means we're dealing with a lot of conflict and a lot of challenge. And the more helpful and kind we can actually be to each other in the workplace, uh, the better we're going to fare. I think checking in on people can be really helpful, just to, an informal check-in, particularly in the COVID context. Um, and those are ways that we can uh, be create a different culture that is less toxic and more supportive. There have been a lot of problems with uh, legal um, professional culture in the past, and we don't have to be that way. Yeah, yeah, so well said. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us and, and educate many of us on this fascinating area. I really enjoy talking about this. I'm very passionate about the work, and I, I really believe that we can do better as a profession, and I think we are doing better. Even though some of the metrics aren't as good as I might have hoped, I think the legal profession is a better place than it was when I graduated law school, and I, I intend and hope to continue to see improvement. Wonderful. Wow. Well, thank you. Having people like you on board is uh, certainly a step and uh, many steps in the right direction. 
Oh, thank you. Thanks for joining me today on the XL Legal Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'm always looking for topic and guest ideas. So if you have any suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you at xllegal.com. That's E-X-E-L-L-E-G-A-L.com.